Let's just go ahead and pray over it, and then you can be seated. Let's, we're going to go through uh, Romans 4, and what a great chapter, incredible chapter. We're going to get established in the Word. Much of the church, listen carefully to me, is anemic. They're anemic spiritually. They're anemic because they don't know the Word of God. They know a few pet verses, but they don't know the Word of God. Some churches, and God bless them, but they harp on the same thing every single time. But the Bible is a panorama of truth, and there are many, 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 many multitudes of things to teach out of it. So that's why I'm taking you through books. I want you to know the Word of God. I want you to get the meat, the greens, the potatoes, the bread. All right? So let's pray. Father, thank you for the Word of God. The book of Romans so rich. Thank you, Lord God, for uh, showing us what you have purchased for us by the blood of Jesus, for establishing us in the faith, for helping us to understand your Word so the enemy cannot take advantage of us. We pray for the truth of God to illuminate us tonight. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to open our eyes, open our understanding so that we can know the hope of our calling in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, tell your neighbor it's going to be good tonight. And let's look at it. We're going to take a walk further down the Roman road. And I appreciate all of you coming. And it's for your good because this will help you in your walk with God. Uh, tonight I want to talk about amazing grace, how very sweet the sound, because remember the first three chapters of Romans, if you've been here with us, are grim. Uh, it's an x-ray. It's like a bad x-ray from a doctor where he sits you down and says, well, what I have found is not good. And Paul has been the doctor. He's been used by the Holy Spirit to, to really let us know the truth about the human race. And without grace, without faith, without Jesus, without the blood, the human race is desperate, hopeless, and helpless. Did you all get that? And that's the x-ray. That's the truth. That's where we were before Jesus came. Now, we saw last time that mankind is hopelessly, helplessly lost. And you see that cartoon that we put up there. For our radio listeners, it's a, uh, a man stooped down with a great big bag on his back, and it's marked debt. And you know what? That's the way we were. What was the debt? We owed a debt we could not pay. What was the debt? It was our sin debt. Because when God's laws are broken justice must be meted out. Okay? When God's laws are broken, there has to be an answer. God's got to judge it. We had a debt, and that debt was carrying us into a Christless eternity. Our sin, we saw last time, was universal. Everywhere, all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. All. There is none righteous, how many? No, not one. We have all turned aside. We have all gone our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the, the iniquity of, of a few of us? No, of us all. So no one, all. Those are the kind of uh, adjectives he uses to describe it. Now, so our sin was universal, criminal, because we broke the laws of God. 
and we were culpable because we did involve ourselves in sin. Anybody in here that never sinned? I want to meet you. All right. Now, both Jew and Gentile, it took Paul a while, a few chapters, to convince his countrymen, the Jews, that they were not righteous because they were a Jew. But they too were sinners. And not just that, but hypocrites. Preaching one thing, living another. So, he said to the Jew and the Gentile, you're all under God's wrath. Every one of you. And remember the first chapter we saw that the wrath of God is being poured out continuously every day on the human race. It's being visited on the children of rebellion. And so it's very, very serious. And the only way to get out from under that wrath is to run to the cross, get under the blood of Jesus, which washed our sin away. That is the only place that that bag of debt is taken off of your back. It's not taken off of your back by hugging a tree, becoming a Buddhist, or having good intentions. The debt sin is only removed by the blood. I want to be so clear about that. Well, Pastor Jeff, that's narrow. Yes, it's beautifully narrow. That means it's not complicated. That means it's simple. The blood washes the sin away, lifts the load of guilt, takes the debt that we owe God and cancels it out. And we are declared redeemed. Now, he says there's none righteous, no, not one. We're all going to face God at the judgment bar without Jesus. Now, finally, just when we feel there's no hope, almost all three, the first three chapters of Romans, right down to the last few verses, there's no hope, excuse, or way out. Right about when you think that way, Paul introduces the way to salvation. Now this is key because he has let us know we cannot be saved by works. There is not a work you can do to be saved. There's not a deed you can do to save yourself. You and I cannot save ourselves. If we lived to be a million, we wouldn't save ourselves. We're under God's wrath. But now he says, here's how you are saved. And he says, hate to break it to you, but it has nothing to do with you. Look what it says, but now. Everybody say, but now. Thank God for but now. A righteousness from where? From God. Apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The law and the prophets all looked forward to the final answer for our salvation. They anticipated salvation by grace through faith. That's what they were all pointing to. Now let's look at it. This righteousness that comes from God, not from our own actions, but from God, comes through, read it with me, through faith in who? Jesus Christ to all who believe. Does it come by faith in anybody or anything else? No. It does not. Jesus said, the way that I came to bring to you is narrow. But that narrow way leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. The enemy will give you a hundred different supposed options. But there's only one real answer. It's narrow. It's constricted, but that constriction and that narrowness 
finally broadens out into freedom and life. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who do what? Who believe. Not all who do any works, but all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short. That little phrase, fall short, is uh, what's called in Greek a present active, and what it means is constantly falling short. You could read it, for all have sinned and are falling short daily of the glory of God. Just as great and massive doors swing on very ordinary hinges, so dramatic changes in Scripture often hinge upon this very common phrase, but now. But now. After painting such a black, cloudy picture of the human condition, the sun now breaks through. Thank God. God has a plan for our salvation. The first thing Paul mentions about this salvation, that it is what? Free. It is not of man's devising, but it's of God's grace. It's free. You can't earn it. You can't earn it. That's what the law was all about. The Ten Commandments came to show us we couldn't live it, couldn't live up to it, couldn't live it out. We couldn't earn it. We could not achieve it. So it's free. And we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We're justified freely. Now, grace is free, but it wasn't cheap. That's why it's amazing grace. You know why grace is amazing? Because God wrapped Himself in flesh and walked among us, felt our pain, taught us, looked us in the eye, touched us, lived with us, slept with us, and God allowed us to beat Him abuse him and crucify him so grace is free but it didn't come cheap didn't come cheap after struggling for centuries without success to measure up to God's standards as revealed in the law salvation by faith alone had come and it was free now Paul uses three metaphors regarding the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to bring home this marvelous truth. And look at these metaphors. They're powerful, and they speak volumes. The first is a courtroom metaphor. Anybody in here ever been in court? Don't tell me. Don't raise your hand. If you've ever been in court, it is so scary. Because, And believe me, I've gone as a pastor to court with people who were in big trouble, and I've sat there before the verdict was rendered. And there is a tension that hangs in the air like nobody's business. You could cut it with a knife. Because this judge and maybe jury have the power to take this person and send them away for the rest of their life. There is such a dramatic moment when here sits the person and there's about to be a verdict rendered. Courtroom drama. Well, he uses a courtroom metaphor. And here it is. We are justified freely by His grace. Well, the word justified comes from a Greek word meaning acquitted. And that's court talk. Okay? Acquitted. The word justified means acquitted through being declared righteous. It's a courtroom word where a defendant is acquitted of all charges. Now, I have been in there and I've seen people 
get sent for years. I've seen it happen. Prayed with them and stood there while a lot of their life was gone. Now, I can tell you that what would have been a dream for them is for somebody to have walked in and stopped the proceedings and walked up to the judge and said, excuse me, but I have the power to take the rap for them. And so what I choose to do is take the rap for this person. I'm going to take their blame. I'm going to take their judgment. I'm going to take their sentence. And you can now acquit them. Now, can you imagine the judge having the guilty person stand up and say, well, this person inexplicably has come in and said that they will stand in your stead and they will take the rap for you and they will be blamed for what you did and they will be judged for what you did and they will receive the punishment for what you did so you are free. Get up and go. Would that make you happy? Even with a traffic ticket. Listen, we were all the judgment bar of God and we were all doomed to an eternity without God. And Jesus, on the cross, received our judgment, received our blame, was blamed for what we had done, and God poured His wrath out on the Son of God on the cross, and then, so He took our sin and put it on Him, then He took His perfectly lived out life, tempted in all points like we are, yet never sinned, and placed that perfectly lived out righteous life on you and said, acquitted, walk out. That's what happened. So we are, say it with me, justified. Are y'all here? Let's try it again. Justified. Do you feel justified? Do you feel justified? You should. So, Pastor, I'm always convicted of sin. I just feel convicted all the time. Have you ever got convicted of your righteousness in God? God has justified you freely. All right, He's declared you acquitted. So, you have been released. Now, uh, the second metaphor Paul uses is that slavery. By, is, is that of slavery by use of the word redemption. Okay? Redemption is a slavery word. Wow, I can't read that. Slave. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Everybody say redemption. Now what is redemption? It comes from a word meaning to release on payment of ransom or to purchase in the market. That is powerful. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, we have been delivered from the slave market. Now, do you all realize that the Bible says before we were saved, we were slaves? You were a slave of sin. Now, we like to walk around in our world and we like to say, well, I'm free to do what I want to do. No, you're not. You're not free to do what you want to do. Well, I'm an independent spirit. No, you're not. You're not an independent spirit. You cannot do what you want to do. If you're not saved, you're a slave to sin. You're on the slave block. And the Bible says that you will go through the motions of sin and you will obey sin and you will die in your sin unless somebody comes and ransoms you off the slave block. You are not your own person. Guess what? If you're not saved, the Bible clearly teaches the devil is your father. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and Sadducees and said, You are of your father, the devil. 
We're under His control and under His sway until we're saved. But when we get saved, guess what? Jesus puts down the only ransom that can get you off that slave block, and that is His blood. You know that I love dogs. You know that I do. I do love dogs. Now, I love people, but I love dogs too. I have a heart for dogs. What better? Who else is going to act like Jesus is returning every time you walk in the door <laughs> but your dog? Now, all of our dogs, and we've got a few of them, are rescues. And I remember one time I went into the pound. I was going to rescue a dog. I just, it just came on me. I'm going to go rescue. It was around Christmas time, and I felt like rescuing <laughs> because I was thinking of redemption. And so I went into the pound, and oh, what a heartbreaker that is to go. And, and what you do is you go down and, and you look at all these, these dogs. Now, I walked in, and here's what I knew. I can't just take him. I'm going to have to purchase him. And so, and only I can do it. He can't purchase himself. He's in a cage. And so I went down the cages, and I looked at one dog. I wanted to take them all home with me, but I found this little one. And he was all curled up in the corner, a little puppy, looked really scared. I said, I'm going to see him. So what I did, I told, I told the boss, open the cage and hand me that dog. I choose that dog. So they said, oh, yeah, it's a cutie. I think he's a, maybe a part chihuahua. There is no chihuahua in this dog. That was a sales pitch. There's not a chihuahua in his tail. But anyway, I got this little puppy. And I, and I held this little puppy, and he nestled right here, and I was done for. <laughs> now, here's the deal. I knew for him to be delivered from bondage, I've got to pay his way out. He can't do it. I'm going to have to do it. Now, did he have anything to do with finding me? No, I found him. You didn't find the Lord. He found you. And where did he find you? You were in a cage of sin. You were all bound up. You could not get out if your life depended on it. And if, he, if somebody had not laid down a ransom for you, you would still be there. And so I took my little pup. I walked to the front. And I said, how much? And they said, this much. And I said, all right, here it is. And I purchased him. If I had not purchased him, I could not have carried him out of slavery and bondage into the free world. But I carried him out after I put down a ransom. Then I put him in my car. And then I took him home to a world he could never have imagined in his wildest dreams that only I knew about because when I chose him, I chose him with a plan. I had a plan in my mind. Now the plan in my mind is that he would run up and say hello to me when I came home, that he would love on my family, that he would occupy the house, that he would be a, a, a lot of fun to be around and we would go places and do things together because I take my dogs with me sometimes. And I had a, so I purchased him, ransomed him with a plan. And now he's living out that plan. And if I hadn't ransomed him, he'd still be, well, he'd probably be gone by now. And so what did Jesus do with you? He ransomed you from the cage. You do know that. There was no getting out until he put down the price. And what was the price? blood.
The underlying thought is of a slave market, the word redemption. The subjects of the redemption are sold under sin and are under the sentence of death. All right? And the purchase price is the blood of the Redeemer who dies in their stead. Amen. So thank God for the blood. Without the blood, you'd still be locked up in sin. You're not your own person until you're saved. You're not free until you're saved. You're not liberated until you're saved. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you don't know the truth and get covered in the blood, you're not free, and you're not your own. And the last metaphor Paul uses to explain our salvation is this one. Ritual sacrifice. God... It says, quote, God presented him in verse 25, chapter 3, God presented him as a propitiation by his blood. Well, that's a $10 word, isn't it? Everybody say propitiation with me. Now, propitiation comes from a word meaning an atoning victim. That's what it means. We see here a guilty person from whom the wrath of God has been removed due to one who was sacrificed in his stead. So propitiation means somebody was sacrificed as an atoning victim in your stead. That's the word propitiation. Powerful. So instead of you perishing, he went in your stead and he was sacrificed. I'm going to answer that phone. (laughs) All right. Why did God have to do this? Why did he have to go that far? to do this. Why do you have to do this? Well, it says in chapter 3, verse 25 to 26, note to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what that means. God sent his son to die in our stead because he's a God of justice. Sin had to be atoned for. Had to. It could not remain unaddressed in God's moral universe. We live in a moral universe, folks, of consequences. If it wasn't a moral universe, then God wouldn't be a moral God. Or put it this way, if God weren't a moral God, it wouldn't be a moral universe. But because He is a moral God, that is, a righteous God. If there is righteousness, then there is unrighteousness. If there is good, then there is bad. And so since he is a moral God, a righteous God, then wrong actions and right actions have consequences. And I think a lot of Christians forget that. They go, well, you know, I'll sin a little bit here and there and and God will just forgive me. He does forgive you. He'll immediately forgive you. But there's consequences. There's consequences. Hey, go six floors up and jump and ask forgiveness on the way down. You'll be forgiven on the way down, but you're still going to hit. Amen? So we're in a moral universe and there's consequences. And that's what he's saying. God had brought a just sentence of death on all mankind for all have sinned. He then provided a sinless sacrifice by sending his son to atone for our unrighteousness. That's where God took care of the sin issue, on the cross. That's where he settled it, on the cross. The cross displays both the monstrosity of sin and the need for God to address it with finality. So every sin ever committed 
was judged on that cross. But you got to go to it and ask forgiveness to take advantage of it. Amen? All right. He says, where is boasting then? It's excluded. Who can boast in front of a bleeding Savior? And who can boast that we're now saved? Can anybody in here boast that you're saved? No, you cannot. Because he went walking down the line, pointed you out, convicted you, called you out of the cage, ransomed you, walked you out into freedom. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Salvation by faith destroys pride. What do you have that you didn't receive? Paul asked in another place. What do you have that you don't, didn't receive? What gift? What can you do? Well, God gave you that. There's no boasting in the presence of God. There's only worship and bowing down. Amen? Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, the God of our salvation is the God of all men, not just the Jews. All right? Now let's move on. Do then we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Righteousness by faith, everybody, is the fulfillment of the law. As soon as you believe God, it is imputed to you that you are perfectly living out the law. Hallelujah. The law came to lead us to grace through faith. Now let's go to chapter 4. Everybody ready? Say amen better than that. Okay. All right, Romans 4 is the great chapter on salvation by faith alone. Why is this so important? Have you caught wind like I have? There is a movement going through the church. And here's what it is. There's many ways to God. Because we live in a politically correct, multicultural society, we're being told, if you say there's only one way, you're a narrow-minded, right-wing bigot. You're being judgmental. You're not with it. You're backward. You're antiquated. You need to catch up with things and realize that there's many ways there. And I've seen people say it on Larry King and different ones all the time. Of course, Larry King loves that. And all of the secular mainstream media love it when they can find a well-known minister who will say, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, sure, there's many ways to God. Sure, it's not just one way. God knows our heart. Well, this is not what chapter 4 tells us. Chapter 4 says there's only one way, and it's by faith alone. Many claim to believe in salvation by faith, but not salvation by faith alone. All right? John Phillips writes, The word alone is the watershed which divides the Catholic from the Protestant, the religionist from the man of faith. And it was the watchword for the Reformation under Martin Luther. When he began to preach, you are saved by faith, by grace through faith alone. And all of Europe was shaken 
And we are the recipients of that move of God back then, centuries ago, right now. And never let anybody take away from you that there is salvation by faith alone. You don't have to do anything to add to it or do anything to take away from it. The work of Jesus is perfect. Okay? Now watch this. He, John Phillips goes on. The religionist believes in salvation by faith, but not by faith alone. He believes in the value of the blood of Christ, but not in the value of that blood alone. He accepts the fact that Christ is the mediator, mediator between God and man, but that not that Christ is mediator alone. He acknowledges the authority of the Scriptures, but not their authority alone. Is this happening in our day where people are saying, churches are saying, leaders are saying, denominations are saying, yes, the Scripture has authority, but it's not only the Scripture. There's authority from other sources, the way I feel, being fair, the way the culture is going. No, no, no. Let me tell you something about our church. We are never going to throw the Bible out the door. This is the Bible, and I'm going to show you the Bible. I want you to catch this, because, because of political correctness, there is a movement right now that if you say you're saved by faith alone and only through faith in Christ, man, you get stones thrown at you. So watch this now. Paul demonstrates that salvation is by faith, how, where, what, alone. Nothing you can do to add to it. He says, faith alone apart from the slightest scintilla of any work or merit of man. We are saved by faith alone. The day that you say, I believe in Jesus Christ and that he rose from the dead, you're saved by faith alone. That's it. Faith alone. Now, watch this. Abraham was justified by faith alone. What then shall we say, he says in verses 1 and 2, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter about faith versus works? What did he discover? Paul argues this. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, by what he did, he had something to do what? To brag about. I got saved by my good works. It's because I was such a good guy. Went to church every Sunday. Gave to the sick and the needy and to charity. It's so easy to get into this good works thing and being justified in the presence of God by what you do. But you're not, and you never will be. You're saved by faith alone. All right, it goes on. Abraham was not justified by works, or he would have had room to boast about his accomplishments, brag about it. But rather, Abraham was justified when he believed God by faith. God takes away all of our bragging rights. When you put faith in Jesus, you're saying this, he paid it all. He did it all. He sacrificed it all. My merit, my salvation is based on what he did not what I do. What does the Scripture say, verse 3 says? Abraham did what, everybody say it? Believed God. And what happened when he believed God? Read it. It was credited to him as righteousness. Wow. So the minute that you said, I believe God's claim about Jesus Christ, 
that he died for me and rose again from the dead. The minute you do that, you say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. He immediately credits to your spiritual account his righteousness. Now let's read the Genesis account, account when Abraham did this. It says, then he, God, brought Abraham outside and said, look up at the heavens, Abraham. And I want you to start counting the stars. Well, God, I can't count all those stars. And God said, that's right, and so shall your descendants be. Now, he told him this when he had not had a child. And time was passing by. Abraham did what when God told him that? Believed the Lord. In spite of circumstances, he believed the Lord. And what happened? Read it again. And he accounted it to him for righteousness. So all of a sudden, God's declaring Abraham righteous not by his works, but by, because he believed the word of God. And that's how he got righteous. Now Paul next makes the point that if salvation were something that we earned, then it comes as an obligation on God's part, not a gift. God's obligated to save us because we did something right. Amen? But he says, no, no, no. That's not the way it works. He says in verses 4 and 5, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. You know, you get your paycheck. They don't give you your paycheck as a gift, but they give you your paycheck because you worked. They're obligated to pay you. Now what he's saying is, Abraham did not do X number of right things where finally God was obligated to pay him with the declaration that he was righteous. It didn't come by obligation on God's part. It came as a gift. It means you get a paycheck and you didn't do a thing. Hallelujah. About half our nation likes it that way right now. <laughs> but that's another story. Don't get me on welfare. Welfare is not of God. If you can work, you better work. I don't want to pay your way. But no, watch this. Salvation by grace through faith is a gift and never comes as an obligation on God's part. He doesn't owe us anything. He says in verse 5, however, to the man who does not work but trusts God who does what? Justifies, declares acquitted the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Wow. David celebrated this truth. It says, quote, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And watch this. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute or credit sin to their account. Man, when you die, you don't want sin credited to your account. You want it gone. Remember the word impute means to take an inventory to add to your account? So David had discovered, David the psalmist had discovered a way to have his sins not only forgiven but forgotten, not only covered but canceled. So there's no sin. Listen, every believer who dies, there's not going to be one sin in their spiritual account. What's going to be there? God's going to look at your account and say, righteous, redeemed by the blood, clear, clean, righteous. 
That's because of the blood. Now, this is why God says through Isaiah the prophet, this is a great passage, Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I remember your sins no more. If God doesn't remember them, why should you? Now, next, once again, Paul addresses the kingpin of the Jews' religion, and it was circumcision. Now, let's read this. Quote, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Or upon the uncircumcised also. What is the blessedness? Being declared righteous. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. All right? Verse 10 says, How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Then Paul says, He wasn't declared righteous when he was circumcised, but when he was uncircumcised. Verse 11 says, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Now, catch where he's going. He's talking to Jewish people here, and they don't like what he's saying. It's ruining their religion. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be what? Imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision, who was Abraham, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Now what is all this saying? The Jews had put all their faith in religious ritual. All their faith in ritual. And people do it to this day. It's so easy to do it. Well, if I go to church every Sunday, I'm righteous. If I pray X amount of time, I'm righteous. If I give X amount of money, I'm righteous. If I am nice to X number of people, I'm righteous. If I go through this ritual, it'll put a smile on God's face towards me. You know what puts a a smile on God's face towards you and me? The blood of Jesus. But watch this. The Jews were trapped in believing that religious ritual is what saved them and made them righteous. Paul is saying religious rites don't save, not even circumcision. It doesn't save you. Circumcision had been the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. You can read about it in Genesis 17. It was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. In Paul's day, many of the Jewish Christians taught that salvation was impossible apart from this ritual. And you can read about them in Galatians and other places in the Bible, in the New Testament. They wanted all Gentile believers to observe it, and nothing made Paul matter. Nothing got his ire up like these teachers going around saying, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what one of the scriptures says. He says, these that are teaching that you've got to be circumcised to be saved, he said, I pray the knife slips. You say, no, that's not in there. It is too in there. Well, that makes me uncomfortable. Hey, <laughs> I'm telling you, it's in there. That's what he felt about it. I should have put it up there. 
but what version would I use? <laughs> All right. Paul called these teachers Judaizers, and he detested their insistence that we must mingle works with faith to be saved. I'll bring the verse next week because some of you are looking at me like, that ain't in there. I know that's not in there. It's in there. Well, that doesn't sound real Christian. Here's what Paul thought. He thought, if you take away from what Jesus did for us, and you try to pollute it and water it down and dilute it, he said, that is light years worse than anything I could say or wish happens to you. Man, he was, he was, it's all by grace through faith, period. All right? Nowadays, we still cling to the belief that we must observe certain rites or rituals in order to be saved. Some believe that belonging to a particular church is necessary to salvation or being baptized a certain way. I've literally had people say to me, were you baptized in Jesus' name or in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost? And I'll say, well, you know what? I think it was, uh, I, might, I think it was Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Well, you've got to go back and get baptized in Jesus' name only. Or if you're not in our church and were baptized in our denomination, you're not saved. That's ritual. That's legalism. What saves you? Faith in the blood, period. That's it. Nothing else. All right, but Paul blows all of this religiosity totally out of the water by pointing that Abraham was declared righteous by God. When? Before. Fifteen years before he was circumcised, before he observed that ritual. He was declared righteous. Well, that, that just destroys the Jews. Abraham was a justified man 14 years before the rite of circumcision was even imposed. Before that, God declared him righteous. Righteous by what? He believed the word of God. Next, Paul points out something that we're all beneficiaries of. He says, God's promises to Abraham and his descendants were not tied to their keeping a law or ritual or anything. God's promise was of grace to be believed and received by faith. When we place the relationship between God and humans on a legalistic basis, we invite the wrath of God. Why? Because you're not going to be able to live up to it. Amen? A mutual understanding of requirements, if you make an agreement with God, here's what it means, that both parties are going to have to carry it out perfectly to avoid conflict. Failure invites penalties. You can't cut a deal with God. You need to go to Him by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, knowing the weakness of human nature as He does, God knows that relationship with Him must be founded on something else. And what is that something else? It says in Psalm 78, 39, He remembered that they were but flesh. How's God see us? Flesh. And what does that mean? A passing breeze that does not return. What is your life, James said? It's even a vapor that appears for a brief time and then it vanishes away. You're not so important. Neither am I. I mean, God loves you, but the world doesn't revolve around you. Amen? So God's plan was that we should be redeemed by placing our faith in Christ's finished work. Here's what it says, quote, It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but it was through the righteousness that comes by faith. Can everybody say with me, I'm righteous. By faith. Not by my actions, but by faith 
I'm acquitted and declared righteous. Now give the Lord a hand of praise for that. That's wonderful. Now let's just read on it. We're almost done. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value. If you're getting to heaven by your works, by the law, then faith is useless and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there's no transgression. He says in verse 16, Romans 4, Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. And that's you. You're the offspring of Abraham. Because why? Because you're Jewish? No, but because you're a person of faith. And he's your daddy. The first one to be declared righteous by faith. All right? Now, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, he says to Abraham, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead, and I love this, what does God do? He calls things that are not as though they were. Wow. The incredible, or this incredible statement about the nature of faith, it sees what is not yet here and calls out to something before it arrives, is referring to Abraham's belief that even though he was too old in the natural to father children, God would yet bring it to pass. Against all hope, I love this passage. Some of you are in this place right now. It doesn't look like there's any reason to have hope. It looks like something is dead and gone. It looks like it's over with and Ichabod's written over the door. Listen, look at your daddy, Abraham, the father of your faith, who was declared righteous by faith. It says this is what he did against all hope. Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Look, he didn't deny reality. Do y'all see that? He didn't say, oh, I'm not too old. He said, I am old, but God can do anything with an old man. Come on, y'all. He said, my body, he didn't deny reality like some of you have been taught to do. Don't you deny reality. If you've got a headache, tell God you've got a headache so he can heal you. Well, I don't have no headache. I don't have a headache. And your head's about to pop. There's nothing wrong with saying you've got it. Then ask God to heal you. Because look, Abraham said, I'm not going to deny the fact that my body's dead. Since he was about 100 years old. 100 years old. Waiting for a child. And that Sarah's womb was also what? Dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised, though he was 100 and his woman was 90. And they're still waiting for a baby. That's your daddy. Who's your daddy? That's your daddy. Against hope, he believed God, believed in the promise of God, and God did it.
This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That's it. Stand up. God is good. <clears throat> well, that's, that's a mouthful what we went through tonight, but is that not the way it is? So thank God. Now, I want you to say something with me. I'm not saved by works, but I'm saved for works. Works testify the fact that you have been saved. But the only thing that gets you saved is that precious blood of the Lamb. Father, thank you for faith in the blood alone. We stand humbled before you because of what you have done. We can't brag. We can't boast. We can believe. And having believed, Lord, you have declared us righteous and have imputed that righteousness of the precious Son of God into our account. Thank you, Lord, that only you could do that. Let's just sing a stanza and worship him a minute here. Turn your do it right eyes now. upon Jesus. Yes, look full. Look full his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace give him a hand of praise for his grace thank you lord thank you for grace